please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we are reading in Mark 5, 21 through 43. That's on page 490 to 491 in the Blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or you need one, feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. So that's Mark 5, 21 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus has crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then he then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put all them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kami, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you that in your word we have life, Lord. We have the, the promise that hearing the, the message, the word of Christ, will produce faith in us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask you this morning, Lord, that you would allow faith to rise in us that will help us, God, to understand what you're doing in our lives and help us to understand what you've called us to, the power of the cross, Lord, the power uh, that you wield over all the instruments of the enemy, Lord, and so we thank you for that. We thank you for this, this powerful testimony that is survived by the inspiration of your, of your word for 2,000 years, Lord, of what happened in, the, in these two lives. Lord, we pray that 
you would, by a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit and the, and the presentation of your word, that you would apply it to our lives and help us to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, I just uh, ask that you would help me this morning, Lord, that you would keep me focused, help me to to know uh, the 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 scriptures lord and to present them clearly and accurately and god that that the result of all of this would be that you would receive eternal praise i ask this in the precious name of jesus christ amen you can be seated um so in the last several weeks we have seen a series of incredible stories we've seen how jesus proved his divine nature by giving orders to a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't amazing that he gave orders to a storm. What was amazing is that nature obeyed his command without hesitation. Then we saw uh, uh, last week how Jesus spoke to an entire legion of demonic forces that were inhabiting a man. And once again, they submitted to him. And they entered a herd of swine numbering over 2,000 pigs. And, and today we're going to see how Jesus takes authority over even the darkest corners of human experience, our sickness and our death. And we're going to learn, hopefully, something about Jesus' redemptive work in our lives, in all of our lives. So Jesus has left the region of the of the Gerasenes. Matthew calls it the Gadarenes. It's in its Gentile population on the eastern side of the of the Sea of Galilee. You'll recall that while there, after after sending the demons out of the man, that the Gentile population there rejected him, and the people actually even earnestly begged him to leave, to get out, to go away, to flee our shores. After he had sent the devils into their swine and they plunged into the sea and drowned under the influence of their hellish power. Well, he's now returned to the Jewish western shore. And, and most likely, we don't know this, the, the text doesn't tell us this specifically, but most likely he's returned to Capernaum where he has a home and he's done most of his teaching and his miracles at this point in the Gospel of Mark. His popularity has only continued to explode and a great crowd again, as we've seen over and over and over since chapter one, has begun to throng him just right beside the sea as soon as he steps out of the boat. You can tell that there was some anticipation of his return, some joy at his return, and the crowds come, I'm sure bringing their sick, their demon-possessed, all of the people are gathering around him again. Now from this great crowd... One of the rulers of the synagogue emerges. And like a, a, the man filled with the unclean spirits before him, he falls down at Jesus' feet in a desperate show of submission and reverence and worship. And this man's name is Jairus. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't one of the scribes or Pharisees, but he was a layman and his responsibility uh, in the synagogue was to maintain the building and to order the services and keep things flowing nicely. Um, and as a ruler of the synagogue, he would have been a person of some importance in the community. Now, if this story does in fact take place in Capernaum, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that Jairus had heard 
Jesus's authoritative teaching. Remember in chapter one, when they said this man speaks with authority and not like one of the scribes of the Pharisees after he had taught in the synagogue, he'd seen his miraculous acts right there in the synagogue. Like when Jesus cast the demon out of a man in chapter one, or when he healed a man with a withered hand in chapter three, all of those happened in the synagogue. Well, perhaps it was the memory of Jesus's divine interventions in the lives of needy people that drove Jairus to seek him out that day. Perhaps it was the compassion that Jesus displayed when he confronted people in desperate need. Maybe it was just raw desperation on his part. But Jairus approached Jesus right as he disembarked out of the boat, and he brought with him an urgent petition, an urgent prayer, an urgent request. The situation is this. Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is in the final stages of a fatal fever. She's at death's door. Hope is fading fast. It was time to call in hospice. And Jairus and his wife, as any parent in here could imagine, are scared and they're thoroughly discouraged. On his face before the Lord, he pours out his heart. He lays out this urgent request. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now watch, as he makes his request, he There's two things you ought to notice about his request. First, he neither denies the troubling reality of what's going on right now, nor does he try to restrain his faith. Now, I want to talk about those two things. I I say he doesn't deny reality because there's a false teaching that's popular today that instructs Christians to never admit or confess that they're sick that they're scared, that they're depressed, that they're anxious. And this is falsely taught and called faith. But if that's right, if that's what faith looks like, then you can right now open your Bibles, rip out the book of Psalms, and throw it away. Because David admitted every single one of those conditions in the Bible. He said, I'm sick, I'm scared, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. So that can't be the definition of faith. See, the root of faith is never denial. But rather, faith springs out of an honest assessment of our situation. When we realize how hopeless it all is unless Jesus steps in with his power. Paul wrote about this in... Romans chapter 4, he's referring to Abraham, the father of our faith, and this promise that God had made him that in his very old age, that God would give him a son from his wife, who was also very, very old. Scripture says this in Romans 4.19, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, he looked at the situation. He acknowledged it. He said, he said, you know, we're not going to have this baby because I'm some hot virile stud. We're, you know, this is, those days are long gone. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. When did he grow strong in his faith? Looking at the dire nature of the situation. It pushed him, it motivated him to believe God because he knew there was nothing he could do on his own. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is how the Bible defines genuine faith. See, no one becomes a Christian by denying the reality of their sins. You don't come to, to the Christian concealing your heart. You don't become a Christian by con, uh, concealing your heart and coming to Jesus and say, Jesus, you'll be glad to have me because I'm really not that bad. But you come to Christ by confessing your sins in all of their ugliness, repenting of them, which means turning away from the very real nature, the very depth of our depravity and our fallingness, and turning toward the mercy and the grace of Christ. Faith means that we know how lost we are, but that we trust that Christ is strong where we are weak. That He is holy where we are unclean. And that He is able to justify us, to sanctify us, to glorify us by His redeeming power. What a beautiful kind, a beautiful picture of this kind of faith we see in Jairus as he gambles all of his hopes for his daughter on Jesus' goodness and power. Listen, folks, they are out of options. They don't have a lot of places left to go. And so he takes all of his worries, all of his anxieties, and he just gambles them on Jesus. Though everything seems impossibly bleak, he begs Christ to come, just come with me and touch her. And he believes that his touch can make her well and drive the stench of death out of his home. And Jesus, we see in the text like we've seen so many times, is moved with compassion. He was motivated to go with Jairus by this expression of true faith. Faith and not wishing and hoping and keeping your fingers crossed, but faith, true confidence in Christ's love and his ability causes Jesus to come to the center of our need. This pleases God and it draws his heart to his children to to, to come and listen to their cries and move on their behalf. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, This kind of faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now, here's the point of that verse. If I took a poll right now and asked you to raise your hands, if I said, how many of you are 100% convinced that God exists? I probably would guess that a hundred percent of the hands in this room would go up. But faith requires more than that. It requires not only that we believe in the existence, the reality of God, but that God is a God in His reality who is moved with compassion and rewards those who seek His face. 
And oftentimes we have trouble believing that. So Jairus has made his urgent request. Now a large crowd of people hearing Jairus' request followed and they pressed in close to be witnesses of what Christ might do in this situation. As Jairus was experiencing a sense of relief, having Jesus finally following him to his house, he's confronted by an untimely interruption. Anybody ever been there? On the outskirts of the crowd, there was another needy person, a woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years, the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter had even been alive. And she too had heard of Jesus' mercy and Jesus' power. And while her medical condition certainly left her anemic and left her weak, it was also for her, the condition that she had, had a severe social and religious implication for her. See, this woman was considered unclean in the Mosaic law as long as the blood flowed. Anyone who touched her, anyone who got near her would be considered unclean. And so therefore she could not marry, she couldn't have a normal social life, and she couldn't attend worship services. And the Bible tells us that the physicians tasked with providing remedies actually served as her inadvertent tormentors. She suffered under them. She had spent everything she had, all of her money, all of her living on the doctors. And now she was at the end of her rope. She was left sick and destitute and utterly miserable. And often, see, the world will put forth doctors for us. I'm not talking, I love the medical community. I'm not talking about actual doctors. I'm talking about the way the world tries to, to fix our problems. And they, they put forth their best thinkers to diagnose what it is that ails mankind. You see it every two years in political elections. We're gonna be the, the guys, the doctors who are gonna fix what ails mankind and we just wind up worse than we were to begin with. Amen? They give us all kinds of pharmaceuticals and psychological techniques that are meant to help. But unless we deal with the ailment of the soul, unless we touch the root of our uncleanness, there's only so much that such solutions can do for us. See, what we don't need, please hear me, what we don't need is just someone to comfort us, to entertain us, to counsel us, to medicate us. We need someone with the power to take away our uncleanness. This poor woman was out of money. She was out of time. She was out of options. But she'd heard about Jesus. And just like Jairus, she looked to him alone for help. So in her unclean state, she, there's no way she could risk approaching him or talking to him. She was breaking the law by being in the middle of the crowd and brushing up against so many people. So she decided to be, to be stealthy and, and she went out yet filled with faith. And she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made whole. So she crawled her way through the crowd and made her way to a place where she could just reach out and touch the fringe of Jesus' robe with her fingertips. And as soon as contact with the living Lord was made, her faith was confirmed. She felt 
the change in her body. She felt it take place. The flow of blood ceased immediately. But here's the great part of the story. See, she wasn't the only one that day that felt something. Jesus, being almost crushed by the press of the mob around him, was has this, this sense he perceives in himself that power has gone coursing out of him. And whether it was just an internal knowing or some kind of physical sensation, we don't know that. But he stops in the middle of this trek, surrounded by hundreds of people to go to Jairus' house. He stops and he says, whoa, who touched my clothes? Now, the disciples heard him say this. And I mean no sacrilege or disrespect, but they thought he was nuts. They thought that he had completely lost his marbles. They look around and they see this jostling crowd. And they think he's momentarily lost his mind. They say, why would you ask that, Jesus? Everyone touched you. But for Jesus, see, something was different. The Bible tells us, remember this, that Jesus upholds at all times all things in both the seen and unseen realm by the word of his power. All of it. The reason you got up this morning, the reason the birds were singing, the reason the sun was shining, the reason the atoms were doing what they were doing was because Jesus is upholding it all by the word of his power. Amen? All of it. But see, what, what I want you to see is in all of that stuff that Jesus is managing, I hope this encourages you, but the touch of faith causes him to hone in on the one thing. The one trusting heart that is looking to him for peace, for rescue, for comfort, for healing, for salvation. He hones in on that. No one crying out to Christ gets lost in the shuffle. He's attentive to those who reach out to him for help. Mark says that in spite of the noisy mass of humanity around him, in spite of, of the clicking, the, the ticking clock and Jairus' urgent need, Jesus stops and he looks around to see who touched him. When I read that, it reminded me of this passage in the Old Testament. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. See, this woman crawled through the, the crowd, probably on her hands and knees, because her heart was completely committed to the Lord and his power, faith in him. And she reached out and touched him. So the eyes of the Lord roaming throughout the earth had defined her. When Jesus makes eye contact, the woman comes and like Jairus moments earlier and like the demoniac in last week's message, she falls in worship before him and makes full confession of what she's done. When Jesus looks upon us, when our eyes meet by faith, we must not hide our sickness. We, we must not hide our sin. We must not hide our uncleanness. We must tell him all of it. 
Though we may fear that that honest confession might might warrant his displeasure or, or, or give us his frown. No, he will receive us if we're looking to him in truth and faith. See, she feared that her touch had made him unclean. Let me explain to you how this works. See, when unclean things touch him, they become clean. That's how it works, not the other way around. Okay, so consider the fact that while we don't have the transcript of their detailed conversation, we know that all the details that Mark has previously given us had to be happening in a conversation that's happening right here. That the gospel, all the gospel writers record, we know that, that this woman had been sick for 12 years. She'd spent all that she had on the doctor. Now, now, the reason I'm pointing that out, there's a conversation going on. Jairus is still waiting. His daughter is dying. And Jesus is having a conversation and encouraging this woman. Now, that may not do anything for you. If you're a mom or a dad here, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Jesus, can we move this along? Jesus, you don't understand how urgent this is. Please come now. But Jesus didn't. Jesus looks at the woman and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. By the way, that Greek there is not go in peace like you're saying goodbye. It's go into peace. He's saying you've been troubled by this thing for 12 years. I want you to go into a new life of peace. Now, what do you think it did for this woman to hear Jesus call her daughter. She had been isolated for 12 years. And now, by the word of Jesus, she was a part of a family. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Though she had been kept from the temple, she now had an object for her worship, and his name was Jesus. Now, But this man who's waiting for his own poor daughter, what do you think it did for him to hear 12 years? Surely his mind flashed back to every moment of his daughter's life. All the joyous and scary occasions that have led to this point. What emotions do you think stirred in his innermost being by Jesus' use of the word daughter? Surely he was overwhelmed by Jesus' compassion, but surely the urgency of the moment increased and increased. This may have seemed like an untimely interruption to Jairus, who was earnestly trying to get Jesus to his child, who was fading fast. But Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the God of all comfort. And what Jesus was doing in, in, in stopping in allowing this interruption and letting Jairus seeing that in using the specific words that he used, Jesus was building his faith and granting him precious reasons to believe for his own need. Now, as Jairus was processing all of this. I'm sure his heart is certainly beating heavily in his chest. The pit in his stomach is growing larger by the second. But he looks up as they begin to start moving again, and he sees a face in the crowd. It's a familiar face, but yet it's somber looking. 
And all of a sudden he knows and he fears what he is about to hear. And the words that are given to us in Scripture come with absolutely piercing bluntness. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? He's saying, look, look, Jairus, we get it. You had to do what you had to do. You tried, buddy, but it's too late. Just come home. Let Jesus go about his business. I'm sure he's got more important things to do. And as the, the dam of Jairus' courage and his determination is about to break, and at the very moment he is about to fall to his knees, weeping rivers of tears, he feels the gentle touch of Jesus' hand on his shoulder as tender words of encouragement flow from his holy lips. Hey, Jairus, don't be afraid. Do not fear, only believe. And by his word, the Lord gives Jairus the gift of an unyielding faith. Romans ten seventeen talks about Jesus' word. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See, faith is never proven genuine. People tell me all the time, faith for this, faith for that, faith for this. But faith is never proven genuine until it comes to the crossroads of impossibility on one hand and undaunted confidence on the other hand. And the question for you this morning is, which direction will you go? Will you just say, "This, it's over, she's dead, and hike down the road of impossibility? Or will you say, Jesus came with me. That has to count for something. I'm going down the road of undaunted courage. Undaunted confidence. Now, did you notice that Jesus' words to Jairus are in the imperative? I mean, they're not just, you know, a Hallmark card kind of pat on the back. He's not asking Jairus, oh, come on, Jairus, just, just give me a chance. Let me see what I can do. He's not asking him, come on, really try hard. Grit your teeth and try hard to believe. No. This is a twofold, albeit gentle, command. Jairus, do not be afraid. Jairus, only believe. Don't give any place to unbelief. As Jesus continues his trek towards Jairus' home, he, dis- he dismisses the curious gawkers in the crowd. And he's only allowing his most intimate disciples, Peter's, James, and John, to follow him as witnesses of the impending outpouring of his power. See, Jesus does not care and still does not care about publicity or popularity. What he honors is unyielding faith. But there are more obstacles for Jairus' faith to overcome, turning the corner that leads to his house. They are met with a noisy ruckus of lamenting music, weeping and wailing, shrieks of the gathered mourners. That may sound strange, but rabbinical law of the day required that even the poorest of citizens in Israel hire professional mourners along with musicians to confirm the death. It was like signing a death certificate and make a public display of grief 
for the fallen sons and daughters of Israel. So these weren't grieving friends and family members. They were financial opportunists hired to dramatize the family's loss and their devastation. As a pastor, sometimes helping families navigate the funeral industry in 2022, I feel like not that much has changed in 2,000 years. See, the world will often wail loudly for us at our apparent defeats. And they reinforce the fears that all hope is gone. If we had any hope, why are these people wailing so loudly? But that's not the believer's comfort, is it? Our comfort doesn't come from weeping and wailing and sobbing and crying and banging on tambourines and blowing flutes. In fact, Paul tells us we rejoice in our sufferings. I don't think that made one bit of an impact, so may I read it again? He's defining Christianity and he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do such a foolish seeming thing? Because he says, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And here it is. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Jesus, building the hope that is in Jairus, after encouraging him to only believe, he lends absolutely no credence to this unnecessary display. He boldly informs these sobbing performers that that the child is not dead, but only asleep. Now he's not saying that she is not physically dead. He's saying that even death poses no hindrance to him because he can awaken her as though she were merely sleeping. Now, what do you think their reaction is? Who is this guy? We're professionals. We've already made the assessment. That girl is dead. They begin to laugh at him. You notice how quickly they left their grieving performance? to mock and and scorn at Jesus' word? Well, Jesus is Jesus, and he takes authority over the situation, and without any permission from Jairus or his wife, he fires the whole lot of them. He says, hit the bricks, beat it, get out of here. And he enters the house with only his disciples and the girl's mother and father following behind him. Now, when they come to the place where the girl is laying, this room is a tomb, literally. Silence of death prevails. She's already cold. She's lifeless. Rigor mortis is set in. And without a moment's hesitation, Jesus kneels down and he takes her hand. Now again, you might read right past that but just as the hemorrhaging woman was forbidden by law to touch anyone if there's one thing a jew was not allowed to do was to touch a dead body if you did you would be made unclean but let me re-emphasize the point that when the ultimate cleanness when the very fountain of life touches the unclean it has no choice but to become clean and once again That same voice that spoke the universe into existence 
speaks. And it says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, Mark uses his favorite word. We've talked about it 42 times in his book. Immediately, euthus in the Greek. Immediately, the girl, once dead, arises. And not only arises, she begins to walk around the room. See, she's not only resurrected, she's completely healed. Jairus' faith, all the going and getting Jesus and waiting while the other woman was healed, all of that is rewarded. And joy banishes all fear, all doubt, all grief. And Mark says that all who were present were overcome with amazement. Now you can yawn through that story 2,000 years later, but imagine if it were your little girl. Imagine the amazement that would have driven you into the streets crying out the praises of Almighty God. So an urgent prayer was heard. In spite of an untimely interruption, the word of Christ granted unyielding faith. And for the benefit of us, 2,000 years later, we are granted an unparalleled illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May I elaborate? The Bible tells us that we too were dead in our trespasses and sins. Your problem before Jesus was not that you were sick. It wasn't that you were broken. It wasn't that you made mistakes. It is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But when we heard the word of Christ, we cried out to him in urgent petition that he would save us. See, it wasn't our sons or daughters who were dead. It was us. It was we ourselves who were dead. We faced all kinds of untimely interruptions on our way to Christ. There were voices constantly distracting us from believing. Others seemed to be getting what we couldn't get. There were delays. There were hardships. There was a burden of guilt and sin to be buried, to be carried breaking our backs. But Christ granted us as a gift, unyielding faith in himself. It was a gift of grace. We didn't earn it by our goodness or morality. We certainly couldn't boast that we had it. He gave it to us. It was the gift of God. And without that gift of unyielding faith, we could have never believed in him. But he spoke his word. An unyielding faith was born and we said, I must arise and go to Jesus. The day came. Oh, what a glorious day. When Jesus Christ himself entered our death chamber. And he took our hand. In all of our uncleanness and he told us to arise. And death was defeated. And our corruption was banished. And in that moment, in that instant of time, we became the righteousness of God in Christ. And here we are. What now? What does all this mean? Well, the little girl got up from her bed and she walked. We get up from the bed of death, the bed of sin and depravity, and we walk. The proof of the little girl's restoration to life was her walking. It's not by accident that the Bible throughout the New Testament tells us to walk 
properly, to walk by faith, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in love, to walk worthy, and to walk in Christ. If your faith isn't moving forward, if you're not making forward progress, you might not actually be alive in Christ. Lastly, Jesus commanded the girl's parents to give her something to eat. Why? Because she's alive. And eating maintains life. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your father has provided the manna of His Word to keep you sustained, to keep you moving forward, to keep you walking. My question to you this morning is, are you eating? Do you feast on Christ and on His Word daily? It's a sad thing to discover that those who Christ has raised from sin and death are living on the brink of malnourishment and starvation. Come to the feasting table of God's Word and watch your faith strengthen and increase. And so I charge you this morning, may we live in the joy of the resurrected. May we stand amazed at what Christ has done as we bring our urgent pleas to us and he grants us unyielding faith no matter the obstacles or untimely interruptions may we see what he is doing all around us whether immediately for us or for others and so that it may fan the fires of our belief our confidence our faith would you stand with me Lord, I thank you that I have gathered to worship this morning with those who were once dead. Those who all hope for them was lost. I thank you, Jesus, that at your voice you said, arise. And we did. We did. We had to obey your command. And Lord, now we pursue you. We love you. We look to you. We long for you, God. God, we admit so often falling into the snare of doubt and fear and unbelief. God, we pray that you would speak your word to us. God, that you would, by your spirit, draw us to your word. We pray that because we know that the way you speak to us is through your word, God. Lord, help people here who have not opened the scriptures for days or weeks or months or maybe even years, God. Help them return now to the word of God and find life. That we would see that we don't live by bread alone, by our own efforts, the things we bake but we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lord, I pray that this would be a walking people, Lord God, that has 
the evidence of their life in Christ is seen in their walking in all the many ways that the Scriptures tells us to. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the call to life. In Jesus' name, amen. for communion come and uh, we're going to uh, receive from the Lord's table today this is a celebration of the life the death the resurrection the ascension of Christ we are we're so grateful um, for what he has done in calling us from death to life and he did that by his own death 
in the words of institution that we read every week, we say, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we considered the things we considered this morning and considered how Christ has said to us, arise, then we look to the cross and we say, you did it that way. You exchanged us, your death for ours, your life for ours. And so we're so grateful. And, um, and we're going to do this this morning with worshipful hearts. And so what I'd like to invite you to do is come forward and receive the elements and then uh, take them back to your seat and we'll receive them uh, together in just a moment. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus that makes us cleansed. Lord, that that he took all of our uncleanness on himself so that we could be clean, so that we could be righteous. God, and share in your holiness, Lord, as you sanctify us daily, as you hasten the day when we will be in, in glory with you, God, glorified completely. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the power of the cross. Lord, we pray that we would walk properly this week, that we would be obedient to your word, that we would be diligent to seek you in your word. And God, we, we thank you for once again this reminder, this renewal of our covenant with you. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position as I pronounce this benediction over you. John, First John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.